Hey guys, and welcome to the Pacing Racing Podcast, the Canadian triathlon podcast made in mind for the A-Troop triathletes. Now, today we have Coach David Tilbury Davis on the show to help us with episode number four of the Road to Roth training series. So for the first time listeners, a bit of a backstory here with the Road to Roth series. At the beginning of August, I announced that I'll be doing my first full distance triathlon at Challenge Roth in 2020. And since then, I found that a lot of listeners were actually on a similar path whether this was for Roth or another race, but they too were on that crazy journey to their first full distance triathlon and looking forward to hearing content specific to that distance. And now, of course, never having actually done that distance before, I figured everyone would benefit the most in a series where I interview top pro triathletes and coaches that will be able to provide a ton of training tips specific to that full distance, as well as give us some motivation and insight that we need to help us maximize our performances come race day. And now to introduce David, he's been coaching both professional and age group triathletes since 1995 and has helped his athletes achieve over three world titles, 11 national titles, multiple regional championship titles, and has helped numerous age group triathletes get their qualifying slots for the Ironman 70.3 and Kona World Championships. Now, David is also the coach of Cody Beals, who just happened to recently smash the Ironman Montreal course record, which was set last year by Cody himself in his Ironman debut. But this year, not only did he crush it, but he also set the first ever sub-eight-hour performance at Ironman Montreal. So Cody will also be doing his Kona debut this October. So him and David have been working hard, fine-tuning, and getting ready for this race, which you'll hear lots about in this podcast. Now, in today's episode, David talks to us about the pros and cons of age groupers self-coaching and how to find a coach that best suits your goals and styles. And we also go over a ton of great training tips and advice. So I hope you guys enjoy this podcast and be sure to take advantage of your long bike sessions by lining up a few episodes to play for constant workout motivation. Now, let's cue the music. So the first sponsor of today's show is Soul Fitness Canada, who is a premier global name in the fitness industry and has become one of the fastest growing fitness brands across the US and Canada. And the reason why I'm so excited for Soul Fitness Canada to be the show sponsor is because all of you know, we are unfortunately nearing the end of summer, which means as a proactive thinker, I have to start thinking about indoor training. And with Challenge Roth just under 11 months away, we're ramping up the volume and running, which requires a treadmill that I'll be able to spend countless hours on. So with lots of research, I found a brand that I can stand behind for their value, quality, and their service. And I'm excited to say that I ended up actually getting the TT8 treadmill from Soul Fitness Canada. And so you'll definitely be seeing lots of this treadmill, guys, in the pacing racing videos. And I can't wait to put some miles on inside the paint cave. And now you may ask, how did I end up choosing Soul Fitness Canada over all the other brands? So for those who don't know, Soul has a full line of treadmills, ellipticals, and exercise bikes, and has been in the industry for decades. And is a popular brand well over 29 countries. They are one of the only manufacturers to warehouse all their parts and products in Canada and host a fully bilingual customer service team. And to briefly touch on the treadmill I went with, it offers up to 15 levels of incline, six levels of decline with speeds up to 12 miles per hour. It has accurate heart rate monitoring with both pulse grips and chest strap options. And the TT8 features a large 22 inch by 60 inch running surface, inboard speakers and a cooling fan and so much more guys. So, so these are all important factors for me when I went looking for a treadmill. And another thing that may resonate with the listeners is it's not just for winter training. In fact, I have a daughter that's 19 months old and who happens to love her nap time. So I love the idea that I'm able to go for a long run on the treadmill while she sleeps. And I think this is a great way for effective time management for the time crunch triathletes out there. So if any of you are in the market for treadmills, bikes, rowers, or ellipticals, or any of that stuff, pour your pain cave, then head to soulfitness.ca forward slash pacing and racing. And again, 
soul is spelled S-O-L-E. And if you guys have any questions on products, then you definitely shoot me a DM and I can help guide you into a treadmill that would suit your needs. So Soul Fitness is providing Pacing Racing listeners a free equipment mat with any cardio equipment they purchase from the website, which is a $50 value. So that's super cool of them, guys. And all you have to do is type in Pacing and Racing during checkout. The second sponsor of today's podcast is Cycon Bags, which I'm super thrilled about because, of course, being here in Canada, unfortunately, it requires a ton of traveling and flying to get around to some of these big named races. So Cycon has actually offered up a 30% discount to the pacing and racing listeners. And you can reap benefits of this by using the promo code pacing and racing at checkout for 30% off. So if anyone has actually traveled with a bike before, you may know that it's an extremely hectic journey if you aren't prepared. And not only that, but it's a whole process of taking your bike apart and putting it back together when you get there. Meanwhile, on this flight, you're praying that your bike doesn't get damaged. So, I mean, that's why I'm thrilled to say after a ton and ton of research into this bike cases, they finally went with the Cycon Aerotech Evolution X, and I cannot wait to show you guys. So I'll be doing a video going over in detail exactly how easy it is to store my bike in it to travel, how little time it takes, and most importantly, how convenient it is to travel with. And so now many of my listeners who follow me know I'm a big fan of keeping costs low because we all know triathlon is such an expensive sport, but I think I literally truly think a bike case is just one of those few items that you should definitely not cheap out on guys. And the reason why I say this is because there'd be no worse feeling than traveling to a race only to get there with a damaged bike or even dealing with the stress of rebuilding your bike. So for a few quick points on the bike case that I chose, it's one of the toughest and lightest hard shell cases in the world, yet it only comes in at a very light 26 pounds. And it can fit bikes up to 62 centimeters in size and wheels up to 26 inches. And with smaller bikes like mine, they can actually fit without removing a saddle. And in most cases, you only need to actually remove the wheels, remove one pedal, and turn the handlebars. That's it. And of course, I could talk up the bike case I bought, but there's just so many more Cycon bags available that they all have their own neat perks and bonuses. So, I mean, definitely feel free to browse around, see which one best suits you and your needs. And if you want to check all these out, guys, you can check them out and see what's on sale by heading to www.cyconbags.com or search them on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube by typing in Cycon, which again is spelled S-C-I-C-O-N. So, David, welcome to the Pace Racing Podcast, man. How are you doing? Uh, pleasure to be here. Thanks ever so much for having me on. Thanks so much to you for coming on. I'm obviously happy to talk with you today. So, before we sort of dive into everything, let's start off by filling the listeners in a bit about your background in coaching. And originally, how did you get into coaching for triathlon? Because uh, it looks like you've been doing this for quite a quite a few years now, to say the least. Um, yeah, it was sort of mid '90s. I started coaching when I was an undergraduate, uh, Loughborough University, which is a very sort of sport dominated university in in the UK. Um, Started out doing triathlon myself um, and then very quickly had an interest in actually coaching. And so I started coaching with the triathlon club uh, within the university. And, and, and ironically, because of uh, the nature of the university, this is before British triathlon were even based there, it was the kind of place that attracted a lot of sort of world-class athletes. So, you know, I had some you know highly competitive ITU races that led the lane one so it was a little bit of a baptism of fire of sort of understanding you know how to plan group sessions 
That's incredible to hear. So now you're, we were just mentioning before this, you are in Finland right now, right? So yes, sounds like you have a lot of coach or sorry, athletes from across the, across the globe, essentially. So you do a lot of training remotely. So how does that sort of uh, work? Do you use the common apps like training peaks and check in with the athletes that way? Or how does that sort of all unfold? Yeah, my, I pre- predominantly, uh, almost exclusively, all of my athletes are um, not in Finland. That, that's not deliberate. That's just kind of how things are. Um, and I do most of my coaching sort of remotely um, and communicate with athletes on a, on a sort of ad hoc weekly basis. Uh, you know, we use WhatsApp, email, text messages, um, comments in training peaks. You know, I prescribe the training via training peaks, um, just simply because, uh, you know, it currently, and, uh, it, to me, it seems to be the, the easiest in terms of, you know, seeing data, seeing subjective comments, um, providing them with feedback, making, you know, on the fly uh, adaptations to a plan if I'm, you know, not in the office. So sort of, you know, that, that's how I sort of get things done. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And it sounds like a lot of coaches these days are, uh, they're sort of moving to that model. It's just, it allows you to reach more athletes across the globe and vice versa. Athletes now are able to sort of handpick coaches as well, right? Like you have a lot of athletes overseas approaching you and they want your coaching, but now this makes it possible. It makes it a lot more easier. So an athlete yeah, the, the, the the only thing that kind of becomes you know problematic is um is just setting up the you know the communication you know if i'm um seven hours or 10 hours ahead of an athlete then it's really just you know making sure that you know we can find sort of mutually convenient times to chat um and and you know that that just sort of happens fairly sort of um organically you know i i don't do any of this you know your time to phone me is 5 p.m. on Friday, my time, and if you don't phone, that's not my problem. Um, right, right. I don't do any of that. That's just kind of that's not really coaching. Um, so, yeah, it, it's just coping with time differences. I've got athletes in Australia, um, in the U.S., in Canada, in Iceland. Um, wow. So yeah, it's uh, uh, fairly spread around the, the globe. But I only coach about 16, 17 athletes any one time and and that's it so i i'm typically turning away um three to four inquiries a month oh wow um, because i just i just can't you know i don't have the bandwidth yeah to coach you know a, a, a vast quantity of individuals because i don't likewise i don't you know coach with set plans i don't sell training plans i've been asked for that as well and um i i just don't do it it's not that i don't it's not that i disagree with it it's just that it, doesn't sort of float my boat so it's not something that i get excited about doing to create some sort of revenue stream i'm kind of quite content to coach you know coach my kind of crew of athletes and and that be that yeah no that makes a lot of sense i was always very curious to see you know just kind of how many athletes uh, one coach could handle comfortably before they have to start turning people away. So I'm sure every coach is different by, by all means. It all depends on how much. Yeah, it, varies, it varies on your business model. You know, if yeah. you have a different business model, you might be able to handle more. Um, you know, I do things my way and that, that kind of suits me and my circumstances and my athletes. And, you know, that's the other thing as well, because I am coaching remotely. I'm not necessarily, you know, operating in the same way as say, you know, uh, Joel Filiola, Palo Sosa, you know, I'm not running a squad, then 
it's also about managing the expectations of the athlete and saying, look, you know, is this, is this what you're looking for in a coach? You know, are you comfortable with somebody that is going to kind of guide you, educate you, you know, give you more insight, help you make better decisions? Or, or do you actually really kind of want somebody to be there face to face a lot, in which case I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not the right person unless you happen to live in Helsinki. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's good. <laughs> it, it, you know what? It kind of makes sense too. And I'm thinking for a lot of uh, time stressed, like age group triathletes, I think this sort of model would be best case solution because it's not like uh, a lot of these uh, age groupers out there after their full-time job are able to always get to a meeting with the coach and stuff. So they, they kind of would like to do that on the fly when it's convenient for them. And I think following your model, I think that kind of works out really well for a lot of age groupers in, in particular. So that's very cool. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of my athletes um, um, seem to be the type of individuals that are comfortable um, with an element of autonomy. Um, they, they, you know, they're not, uh, they're not robots they don't, or they don't sort of demand, you know, tell me what to do and I will execute and I won't think about it. I'll just do it. You know, that's, again, not something that I sort of countenance. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And so it's amazing because uh, like looking back sort of what you've done over the years, uh, you've been known to be like, we're just briefly talking about here, uh, both like an innovative coach here. And also you like to be on the cutting edge of training and which is sort of why I brought up this. It was super fitting to see that you partnered up with Stack Performance, uh, of course, soon to be Four Eyes Innovations here. But yeah. how's that been uh, going so far? Um, so I was introduced to Stack via the work with Cody Beals, um, and then you know Stack um, asked me to act as a sort of consultant to them on a sort of knowledge sort of transfer basis. So you know if they have um, certain things that they're looking to develop um, that they feel um, are in the wheelhouse of you know me as a coach or or an athlete, then um, we, they tend to run it by me and, and sort of say, we well, you know, what do I think? You know, do I think this is viable? Do I think there's market capacity for it? Do I think it's a good design? Um, not the, the latter's an interesting aspect because ironically my under, my undergraduate degree a very long time ago was product design and manufacturing engineering. And then that sort of segued into biomechanics, post-grad research. So, you know, I, 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 I do feel that sometimes when, I've, I've tested products for other companies that I've been able to kind of provide them with some, you know, reasonable insight into, you know, actually, you know, the ergonomics of this, you know, do make sense, don't make sense, you know, this could be improved, you know, this could be better, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, that's incredible. And, and yeah, by far, Stack Performance and Four Eyes are both incredible companies. So it was kind of cool to see that all line up with with you as well. So that was a, a neat little uh, news article that I read about that. That's incredible. And and so I guess like as we become more advanced in technology, and of course our world champs out there, they continue to break these new records, which just seems impossible, but they keep doing it. Uh, I mean, a lot of it could come down to just all this improved sophistication and how we see training and and how we use this technology, like we just talked about, to help us train. So it's super fascinating to sort of watch that all unfold. It's uh, pretty neat. I mean, I think, I think you definitely have to see sort of technological advancements as providing, you know, either a better equipment. So perfect example of that would be the Nike 4% shoes or, or be providing, you know, better insight. So example of that might be Leomo's, you know, inertial motion capture sensors that, you know, give you insight into kind of how your body's moving when you're riding the bike. Um, those are two examples that give very, you know, different 
feedback and and information but they only play a part you know like any sort of sculptor or, or um you know or, or carpenter you know sharp tools and good tools are you know are great and useful but you still have to have the craft to be able to understand you know well is that useful information or is it just noise you know is it useful information to the athlete does it give the athlete the capacity to make better decisions or does it just you know tell us something that we wouldn't address and and what i mean by that latter part is you know sometimes you might look at say somebody's you know running form and and say oh my god you know we need to change you know x and y we need to change their mechanics you know but actually you know anatomically it may be impossible to do that and and it would be inappropriate to do that right um other times you know there may it may be appropriate to sort of subtly shift things with somebody's running mechanics as an example and the same with the swim you know that's another one where i think sometimes people put the cart before the horse where they're like you know you should do this drill you should do that drill and it will make you better at swimming and well it may if it's relevant and pertinent to that individual's sort of anatomy and physiology but you you can't make somebody do something that they physically can't manage to do so you know in the main i with the swim i like to talk about developing skills rather than actually working on drills because sort of the subtle difference is you know one is the the athlete really thinking about what they're doing in the context of actually swimming whereas the other is very sort of internally cued like do this with your hand or do this with your elbow and so the the brain doesn't actually think about the entire stroke it just thinks about the hand Right. Yeah. Actually, that's super fascinating about the the swim because I think a lot of people and like unless they've come from a swimming background, that's a, always a huge struggle for them, right? And it's always the common the common analogies like or what you just said there. It's it's really breaking it down to the basics, but there's different ways for it. Like you're right, it's not a one size fits all. And I guess I can go with the bike and run as well. So that's a very yeah, fascinating. It's, it's definitely it's definitely not a one size fits all. I mean, you know, the cl- sort of cliched comments from experienced coaches when asked you know, you know, what would you do in this situation is it depends because they probably don't have enough insight into the athlete and, you know, what's the context. So yeah, it, there's not really anything that, uh, that I haven't looked at from a, you know, scientific or a practical perspective and said, okay, well, what's the context here? What's the value here? Um, you know, it's why you see, you know, uh, an important, you know, sports psychology is an important piece of a, of a coaching skill set and there are certain coaches that have a you know a reputation for being able to really kind of get inside athletes heads and and get the best out of them and it's not an either or you know it's not you know like they're right and people that use data are completely wrong i think there's a you know there's a middle road to take that and you know it depends on the athlete right yeah no it makes 100 percent sense well it's very cool and oh great and i mean Talking about coaching here, uh, now I, I've heard the best part of being a coach, obviously, is uh, probably getting to see your athletes succeed and, and reach those goals that they set out for themselves that you guys set out together anyway. And, you know, I'm sure you've been over the moon with uh, Cody's performance at Ironman Montreal not too long ago here, uh, especially as we're nearing his Conan debut. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It was, a, it was a fantastic performance. I think, you know, Cody, you know, we, we definitely had uh, an intention to go into that race to get the best out of of Cody 
given where he was at with his fitness and his development um, and I'd kind of given him some guidelines on sort of how to how to go about that um, but for, for it to pan out how it did I think is as much a reflection of Cody's sort of grit and and just his own sort of sense of of his own body and and what he can and can't do and and also a little bit of you know taking a little bit of a risk sometimes which is you know what you need to do as a professional athlete you know i i always use the analogy that in in big races you know for for um, athletes at the very pointy end it's a bit like a game of poker and you know you need to know how to play your hand and i think a lot of athletes still don't really fully understand you know the hand that they hold i mean in a sort of physiological context so you know they may come into a championship race and you know prepare for it you know well and and taper for it well but still on race day have some sort of innate hope that you know magical unicorn pixie dust is going to be sprinkled on their capacity to do something that they've never ever evidenced in training before and you know that sometimes that can be rash exuberance but in the main i think it's just you know a lack of uh it's ego and you know long distance racing takes a lot of humility you know there's statistics out there showing that you know the real racing in kona doesn't really start until 150k into the bike you know, that's not to say that you're not racing before that, but the reality is, yeah, yeah. You know, the the you know, it really starts to happen at 150k into the bike, and uh, and likewise, you know, even more so, the back half of the run. So, you know, it's I I, I would say, um, you know, Cody's uh, Cody's strength is his capacity to be sort of very objective. You know, in the midst of a race, um, while still while still wrestling with you know, the, the, the normal emotions that any athlete has. No, it's very fascinating. And it's so true. And so I guess that's sort of why I want to ask, because of course, like Cody's story in itself is incredible too, I guess, mainly because just last year at Ironman Montreal and Blanc, yeah, that was his Ironman debut. And that's why I thought it was so fitting for this sort of uh, podcast series, because it's the Road to Ross series where a lot of these listeners are actually doing their uh, first full Ironman or first full distance triathlon. And you know, this strikes a really good question. I was curious to find out, uh, how'd you guys lay out Cody's training plan without getting into specifics, obviously, but how'd you guys lay out and structure a plan deciding on, you know, pacing strategies with him, uh, for the race with him never actually having done an Ironman before thinking back to last year anyway. Um, I, it comes back to my point about, you know, sort of really evidencing and training, you know, uh, um, what, you know, you may be able to do you know, in a race, um, you know, I, I, I think again, it depends on the athlete, but I think if as an athlete, you know, you, uh, can get through a day where, you know, you go to the swimming pool and, you know, you swim at what you feel to be, um, your sort of Ironman effort for, um, 2.4 kilometers, so you'll, you'll, you'll get where I'm going with this in a second. And then you go home, have some breakfast, you know, let your food go down, recover, rest, and then get on the bike and, you know, ride at what you feel is Ironman sort of effort or power or heart rate, whatever sort of you use um, for 112 kilometers. Um, and then come home, you know, have some lunch, 
you know, let your lunch go down, recover, rest, and then in the evening finish off, you know, with a, a 26 kilometer run, you know, that that's a big day of training. Don't get me wrong. It's not something that you would do regularly in the slightest, but, you know, I think some folks do need to sort of litmus test their ability and there are other folks that just don't. And, and, and there isn't a right answer on it. You know, it's, it's like marathon training or it's like training for an ultra. Um, you know, some, po- some folks absolutely have to go and do a whole bunch of 20-mile runs leading into a marathon. Um, and that's great. And, and other people are just like, I, I don't need to do it. You know, I, I don't need to run that long. So there is a, there is a sort of mental aspect to it. And, and it's borne out when you look at people that race ultras. You know, people that race ultras don't do almost a full ultra, you know, in a day in training. Right. You know, so, um, so clearly there is a psychological aspect to being able to perform on the day. But you also want to do something in training, um, you know, whether it's what I kind of described as a metric Ironman or whether it's a, a four-hour bike ride followed by a one-hour run straight off the bike you want to do something to give you a sense of, you know, yes, I've got the confidence to get it done on the day. Um, and if you're not sure on that, then, you know, maybe ask somebody that has, you know, more experience of racing or speak to a coach or speak to the the, the coach within the club that you're in. There's always going to be different answers, but what I would always stress is, um, as John Finial says, you know, hope is not a strategy. Uh, you, don't, you don't go into an Ironman like hoping that you're going to hold 75% of your threshold. You know, uh, if you've never really held that for a long period of time in training, right? It's just not smart. Yeah, that's that's funny. That's a hope is not a. That's awesome. I, I love that quote. And so I, as we sort of talk on that, I guess like I can imagine from your coaching experience, you see some common paradigms drawn amongst uh, all the age groupers out there throughout all these years of training. Uh, probably some of the they're trained themselves to the point of overtraining to those only sort of wanting to focus on strengths and not weaknesses, and, and you know so forth, like things like that, right? And now I know. Uh, well, I guess for you, like, what are some common training problems that, that you find that we could shed some light on for age groupers when it comes to long distance training? Do you see some common traits that we should be aware of? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, there's a sort of, there's a candid, as a coach, there's a very candid sort of come to Jesus discussion that I would have with any athlete that's about to embark on training for an Ironman. Um, and that's because I, you know, I think it's important. They really truly do understand the gravity of what they're getting into. Um, you know, it's not, you know, it's not just any, you know, endurance undertaking. It is a pretty significant day that could be, you know, as much as, you know, 16 hours operating at, you know, intensities that are within a couple of percent, you know, relative to your own fitness of what the professional athletes are doing for only for sort of, you know, eight hours. Um, so, you know, to, to sort of for somebody to come along and say, Hey, I'm going to do an Ironman in six months and I've never done any, you know, I don't have much in athletic history. I would, I would sort of caution the wisdom of that. Um, uh, an analogy that I always use is, you know, if triathlon is something that you feel is a, you know, is a, is interlaced into your lifestyle, um, you know, then really, if you're new to the sport, then, you know, enjoy it and, you know, get used to the sport and enjoy the camaraderie and, 
you know, spend a year doing sprint distance races, spend a year doing Olympic distance races, spend a year doing one or two 70.3 distance races. And then finally in your fourth year, you know, do an Ironman. But, you know, that's kind of not necessarily the day and age that we live in. People are sort of quick to, you know, sign up for an Ironman um, for whatever reasons that motivate them, positive, negative, faith, charity, you know, status doesn't really matter. Um, and hope that they can, you know, train for six months and get it done. Um, when it comes to the training, I, I think then you also need to have an honest sort of discussion around, you know, how much training do you actually need to do? And I think, yeah, there's, there's always the poster child examples of this person, you know, crushes Kona on eight hours of training a week. It's like, yeah. And they're a genetic freak. um, If they had chosen a different lifestyle, they probably would have gone to the Olympics in cross-country skiing or, (laughs) you know, 10K running. You know, let's not, you know, let's not beat around the bush here. You know, there's always going to be those those kind of false prophets that say something like that. You know, the reality is for most people, you need to be training in sort of the teens, comfortably in the teens, um, to really you know, prepare your body for a day that is going to be in the teens. No, it makes sense. And actually, so it's funny because uh, when we had Cody Beals on here, uh, this is a little while ago, but Cody Beals sort of said a similar analogy too, that you don't necessarily have to, you know, jump up to the full Ironman distance. Like that's not the be all end all right away, right? Like you could spend years doing sprints and Olympics. And then if you ever wanted to, you know, just stay for many years at 70.3s, like it's all very, uh, triathlete specific, uh, what they, what they enjoy essentially. Well, so I think I think it's motive specific. You know, yes, mm-hmm. you know, we could sit here and say that training to go sub two hours in Olympic distance is an incredibly arduous and spectacular thing to achieve. Um, but that's very speed orientated. You know, in the same way that somebody might say, "I want to train and qualify for Kona." That's great, um, but the reality is that might not be the motivation for most people. For most people, it might be you know, I, I want to do a 70.3 because, um, it's something that excites me. You know, I enjoy the camaraderie of training with a group and, um, you know, I would just like to get round, you know, to the best of my ability. And that's absolutely fantastic as well. So and I don't think it, there's a right answer. I think, uh, the reality is, is just always trying to understand, you know, what is it that motivates you? Because in, in long distance racing, there is always going to come a point in the race where you start to question everything. <laughs> yeah. Did I do the right training? Did I do a long enough bike ride? You know, is my heart really in it? Can I do it? Can, you know, it, well, okay, what is, what is your sort of raison d'etre? What is your why? At the deep of your, you know, at the deepest part of your core, you know, and there may be some sort of, you know, deep Freudian dark aspect to that, but it may also be something super positive, like you want to, inspire your children it doesn't matter but you should definitely know that yeah no that's amazing that's a very well said i think that makes a lot of sense that could probably resonate with a lot of listeners too so that's incredible and now i guess as we talk about all these like training in the teens like we just said there uh, for mm-hmm. athletes that are self-coached and they consider the idea of getting a coach uh, what are some things that they should be asking of the coach or, or looking at when deciding you know which coach athlete sort of would uh, pair best for them I mean, I think uh, it's definitely, um, it's, it's important to do sort of due diligence um, because, you know, at the end of the day, the, the nature of coaching is incredibly, in, it's a incredibly personal working relationship. Um, you know, I need to understand 
all of my athletes at a, a very emotional level, you know, I don't necessarily need to know the details of an, you know, an argument that they've had with their partner the night before, but I definitely need to know whether they didn't sleep well and that they're comfortable saying, you know, I'm in a rough spot emotionally or whatever. Um, but it's still ultimately predicated on a, on a transactional basis. You know, there's, it's a business relationship there. So I'm being hired by somebody to improve their capacity to perform. And I should be held accountable to that. And any coach should be held accountable to that. So the kind of questions that I'd encourage anybody thinking of getting a coach to ask are things like, you know, what's your track record of, of injury with athletes? Um, what's, you know, what's the sort of average time that you've been coaching somebody for? Um, because, you know, obviously if they have a very high turnover, that might be a little bit of a red flag. Um, you know, you might want to ask them, you know, what they prefer as a communication style. And, uh, you might want to tell them what you prefer as a communication style. Um, it, it's definitely worth putting down on paper the expectations that you have of that coaching relationship. You know, do you wanting somebody to just write you a plan and, you know, just keep sending you a plan each month? Or are you wanting somebody to, you know, create the perfect recipe of performance and to kind of nurture and cultivate that sort of, you know, every, you know, day in, day out and, um, and talk with you and motivate you. You know, I think there are generally a lot of people that sort of go, I need a coach and then just go out there and get a coach without really thinking about what they want from that relationship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a bit like kind of, you know, thinking that, um, what would be a good example, you know, that, um, thinking that, you know, you, you know, you want a lawyer to, you know, do some, you know, uh, a will for you, but then you just don't bother thinking about what you want to do with your possessions and you just phone up a bunch of lawyers and say, write me a will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, better to do the homework and save both the coach and, and yourself some time. Um, so that you know expectations can be managed appropriately yeah no it makes a lot of sense and so again like as we just mentioned earlier sort of how you operate like I think a lot of uh, coaches are out there doing that and that makes a lot of sense and I'm just thinking here because myself in particular like I live in a fairly small town I I can I'm sure many listeners might be in a similar situation where there's just not really all those top coaches readily available for you, right? So I think that's a, a good way of doing it. And when you sort of look at coaching someone uh, like abroad or, or globally or something like that, uh, what are some indicators you look at when you're looking at their data, say on training peaks or, or whatever system you guys are using, uh, that you would say, okay, the, the, to the athlete that they should start to dial it back and take a rest day or take a slow week or, or something like that. And I guess conversely too, would there be any key indicators to say like, okay, let's that we could probably ramp up your training with because I think you can fit in more volume or more intensity or how does that all sort of work? I mean, firstly, you, it would be making sure we understand the context of where we are in the, in the season from a planning and development perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are we actually trying to work on and develop at the moment? Because, you know, you don't want a situation where an athlete is sort of saying, you know, Hey coach, I feel good. Can I just kind of crush that session? And you kind of just go, yeah, fine. And then the next day, Hey coach, I feel good. Can I crush that session? Yeah, fine. And then, you know, suddenly you get like two weeks down the line and they've basically, you know, written themselves into a hole because you've given them the autonomy to just overcook things in a way that isn't, 
in line with a sort of a reasonable process that you've kind of agreed that builds towards an end goal. Um, so you know, there, there is, you know, that to consider, but, you know, ultimately I, I tend to look at first and foremost, actually having a conversation with them, like, you know, how are you feeling? You know, I look at the subjective comments, um, in, in training peaks, you know, funny enough in this day and age, you know, you can, you can use things like word clouds to actually kind of suck all the kind of commentary day to day out of training peaks and, you know, run an algorithm that looks for the most commonly used words. And, you know, on a week to week basis, if one might see, you know, the word sore as a pretty significantly used word on a regular basis, <laughs> you might want to think about dialing back your plan. So, you know, there's the subjective comments, there's the actual discussion of, you know, how do you feel? You know, how are things going? Are you sleeping okay? Um, I, I don't use any sleep metrics. I, mean, I think there's some evidence that using that can be beneficial, but I don't sort of push on athletes to constantly log the hours that they sleep. You know, I, but I certainly expect them to tell me if they've been having some rough nights. I, I do use heart rate variability. Um, you know, I think there's a whole body of evidence out there that I think if you're trying to understand the systemic stress on the body that using heart rate variability is a good start and in fact there's just a paper that came out that actually looked at sort of um block periodization of training in cyclists versus hrv as planning tools to enhance performance and it and it makes a strong case for kind of hrv being better than block periodization now you know it, it ultimately and it's just a study it doesn't you know apply to necessarily everybody um, and in fact, in my mind, I would say, well, you know, that's good, but actually if you use both, um, to make better decisions, is that not the best of both worlds? Um, so then when I look at the data, you know, I'm looking at, you know, how compliant were they with the, the training session that we planned, you know? So if I gave somebody for argument's sake, some strength intervals that were sort of at an at intensity that was very sort of bottom end of tempo where tempo sort of is the training that's not threshold and and not comfortably aerobic um if that you know ends up being constantly completed at an intensity that is very threshold like you know knowing the athlete's ability then clearly there's a sort of a come to jesus discussion to be had with the athlete about you know they're making you know the the moderate you know they're they're making stuff too hard and that's a regular conversation with some folks where, you know, you need to understand that easy is easy and, and hard is hard. Yeah, no, it's true. That's a very, very common uh, struggle that a lot of, well, in particular age groupers, but I guess even any, some pros too might struggle with that, but uh, it's that easy. Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a big co- cognitive aspect to it as well. You know, like mm-hmm. you can't disassociate the two. You know, I, I, I kind of pride myself on persistently trying to learn uh, in, you know, from all fields and, and all aspects and, and contextualize that learning. And I, you know, I uh, had a kind of great experience recently where um, we just kind of came up against a brick wall with some developmental aspects of a particular athlete. Um, and we went and spoke to um, a coach that, you know, was recently a professional athlete and, they said, you know, hey, actually, you know, I think, you know, this part of the training, you know, you're just not really thinking about the cognitive demand enough. And, and actually, if you change it and restructure it, 
and focus on them, you know, just actually thinking more about what they're doing and then it would be, you know, it would be far better. And you know, that was a, that was a kind of a great kind of reminder for me to, you know, not get too bogged down in sort of dogmatic points of view. Yeah, no, that's amazing. That That's uh, really cool to hear. And again, it, that's the beauty of our sport. It's just such a ever evolving sport when it comes to the training, the racing, that there's always something we can learn. So I think that's very cool. And I mean, before, like, I want to focus on uh, some of these details, like we just mentioned there, heart rate training in particular. But uh, before we do, this is sort of a question is, I don't, I don't want to try and make this too blanket term, uh, sort of a question. But when it comes to creating a training plan, so I guess, use myself as a case study here to kind of narrow in on specifics with challenge Roth just in July. So we have several, well, it's more than several months away uh, when it comes to some basic training principles, uh, like creating a training plan for an age grouper, uh, is there sort of a pyramid that age groupers can sort of structure their training? Again, everyone's going to be different, but uh, do you suggest things like that far out, you'd start with the strength in zone two. And then as they get closer, switched up and throw in a different style of training or is there any good general philosophy that they can start out with or is it very specific per athlete? Um, no, I mean, you know, ultimately an Ironman is an Ironman. You can't do CrossFit and then, you know, drop a nine hour Ironman. <laughs> uh, so, um, some people might say that you can, but I kind of beg to differ. Um, goes back to my genetic freak comment. Um, yeah. but you know, a simple framework, you know, some, some simple frameworks, you know, then these are some things that I kind of took uh, took from business, but also think are a very simple analogy to understand. If you think about your, let's take you for example. If you think about your kind of capacity in an athletic sense as a house, think about the foundations of that house, and and think about the fact that you're you're an architect of your own house, and you're trying to build a phenomenal million dollar home. So clearly what you're going to do is lay good foundations. So good foundations, you know, good sleep patterns and hygiene, you know, good nutrition, you know, those are your foundations. Then you might say, okay, well, you know, I want a nice big house. So, you know, I need to have big, strong walls. It's like, okay, well, you know, that's your core conditioning or, or you know, not necessarily core, but that's just your conditioning your physical conditioning from a, from a strength perspective, because ultimately, you know, when you're biking, you know, you, you need to express force from a very stable base. I, you know, kind of knee to chest sort of core, the same on the run, you know, the same on the swim, you want good connection through that, you know, trunk from chest to knee. So, you know, do you have any, you know, weaknesses there? So if you do, then they need to be addressed. Or if it's just maintenance work that needs to be done on a prehabilitative basis, then great, you know, do something regularly, even if it's just 10 minutes in front of the TV in the evening with the kids. You know, then, you know, you've got your walls, then you say, okay, well, I need a nice roof to kind of protect the house from the elements. And that that's effectively your VO2 max. So, you know, you want to raise the roof so you have a nice big house. So you may do an aspect of your training to raise the roof. And then ultimately you want good sized rooms. So, you know, that, you know, that ground floor is your aerobic ability and that second floor is your anaerobic ability. And in between that is your threshold. So, you know, think about, if you think about your kind of physiology in that context, then you can very quickly understand, okay, you know, where am I weak? You know, where am I strong? And And then you take that information and you contextualize it with, okay, what are the demands of the race? Let me do a simple, you know, SWOT analysis of, you know, what are the, 
what are my strengths relative to the race? You know, Roth is a sort of flat to rolling power orientated bike course. I don't mean power in terms of power meters. I mean, kind of, you know, a sort of power rider, you know, a stronger sort of type rider will fare well at Roth. So, you know, do you live in an environment that, that, you know, is conducive to you training for that? Or do you live in an environment where it's absolutely not conducive to that? So a good analogy that I always use is an athlete comes to me, they live in Florida and they say, hey, I'm going to do Ironman France. Great, fantastic. How are we going to train for a 45-minute climb on the bike? <laughs> you know, there's, understand the context, understand the demands, uh, understand the weather. You know, I think heat and humidity, I think, are vastly underestimated by individuals. Um, and, you know, not, you know, you may not necessarily be able to prepare for that. Um, although, you know, in this day and age, we know a lot about how to use, you know, access to a sauna to improve performance in the heat fairly easily. Um, but if you can't even you know, manage that, then at least understand the implications of, you know, going somewhere where it's 15 degrees, you know, I, mean, I say that in centigrade, 15 centigrade hotter than you ever train in and 20% more humid than you ever train in. You know, how do you contextualize that? And so once you have that sort of understanding of you and you have that understanding of the demands and, you know, what opportunities you have and what are the threats to your training, you know, do you work shifts? You know, does that, how does that impact on your planning of training? Do you travel a lot? So do you need to kind of block periodize your training? I've got one athlete that tends to travel in three, four day blocks occasionally. And so, you know, we tend to do bias the swimming and the biking when they're at home. And, you know, with some running and then when they travel, it's, you know, it's easy to travel with a pair of running shoes. They bias the running. So once you understand that and you have that framework and you know the demands of the race, then you can start to put together something that, you know, is orientated towards you maximizing your ability in the race. So that's that's the most simplistic um, but beneficial approach, I would say, uh, people can take because the reality for many age groupers do you want to get bogged down in the weeds of, you know, should I be doing some threshold training? Should I be intensity or intensity orientated? Should I be volume orientated? Should I do polarized training? Should I do, you know, hit intervals? Um, uh, that's almost getting in, you know, that's getting into the weeds of things when in reality they don't have enough time to train to maximize their genetic potential. So really, you know, what is most, you know, efficacious relative to the race. Amazing. Yeah. That really sums it up. I love that analogy with the being an architect of your own home. That that's incredible. So that laid it out nicely. I'm always worried to ask those questions because they're, they're too, too general, right? But you, you did a very great job at keeping that very specific to all athletes that they can resonate to that. That's right. Everyone's going to be individual and focusing on it from the ground up like that. I think that you really can't go wrong with that. So that's a, a great no. way of looking at that. You know, oh. once you've kind of laid though, once you've, once you've effectively done that and been doing that for a period of time, you know, then you can get into the weeds of, okay, should I be doing these types of intervals or those types of intervals? Or should I buy this piece of equipment or that piece of equipment? Um, and don't get me wrong, you know, if somebody has a very large amount of disposable income, um, it, it, it excuse the somewhat crude analogy, but, you know, spending $15,000 on, you know, the super fastest triathlon bike on the planet and going in a wind tunnel and getting a bike fit and you know, going to a velodrome and doing all sorts of things versus, 
you know, hookers and cocaine is <laughs> is a better way to spend fifteen thousand know, dollars right. if you have fifteen thousand dollars to spend. So I, I don't think I, you know I would judge anybody either for saying you know, well, how much speed can I buy? Well, you know, what's your budget? You know. Yeah. No, it's a good way of looking at it. Actually, <laughs> that's very funny. It's true. If you have if you have the extra cash, do it. Why not? Eh? No, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> that's funny. So switching up here, are not switching up per se, but getting more specific, uh, let's say, what would you be, what would be your take on using heart rate zone training and power zones and power zone training? Uh, are these tools that you use to gauge training intensities during the training for athletes? Or is this something that you like to analyze after the fact, after a training session? Um, I don't, don't use heart rate zones, um, no. although I do pay attention to heart rate. So, you know, as an example, somebody might go out and do a training ride and there may be a significant amount of cardiac drift, you know, then I'm, I'm going to look at, you know, what were the, what were the environmental conditions? I'm going to ask some questions about, you know, what did you do in terms of hydration and nutrition? Um, you know, we'd look at, you know, what the uh, heart rate variability was in the preceding few days. There'd be that sort of, you know, post hoc analysis, um, in, in terms of power zones, I, I do use those. You know, do I believe that, you know, every triathlete should own a power meter? No. Um, do I feel that it's a useful tool? Yes. There's plenty of world championship athletes that train with a power meter, but don't necessarily race with it. And I, and I think, you know, there's always a risk for, for age group athletes to look to, you know, the professional athletes at the very top of their game and say, you know, well, what are they doing? And, and clearly that, that seems to be working. So I'm going to do, I'm going to do something similar. Mm -hmm. Um, let's not forget these people are the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. Um, and you know, in most cases there's a, an element of a lack of relevance to your average Joe in what some elite athletes do, because you know, they're just, you just don't have the same genetics, physiology, athletic age, um, sporting background etc yeah no it's all, that's very true it's something to always be very mindful of and and that's right so i'm actually i'm surprised uh about the the heart rate uh zone training so i just to dive in a little bit further um is it just simply because there's too many variables to the heart rate zone training is that something that's a, a big indicator for you um, i think there's a lot of factors that influence heart rate you know have you ever have you ever gone for a bike ride after having you know two espressos too many in the morning and <laughs> decided that you're going to go for an, a comfortably aerobic bike ride you know i have and um you know trust me the first 20 minutes of the bike ride were very definitely not comfortably aerobic heart rate um the power was <laughs> the the perception of effort in my legs was yeah. um but the heart rate wasn't so you know that's a little bit of a simplistic view but you know the the analogy that i would use is you know in the context of say the bike is imagine a power meter is like the speedometer on the car you know 70 kilometers an hour is 70 kilometers an hour is 70 kilometers an hour your heart rate is like the rev counter so you know you can be you know revving the engine or you can be in cruise um and then your perception of effort is like the fuel economy gauge. Um, and I think if you understand the relationship between those three things, um, then you can make better decisions if you're using all three of those tools. If you're only using one of those things, then at least have the honesty and wherewithal to understand the limitations and to understand the context. And what I mean by that is if all that you do is train by feel, 
then you know try to sort of educate yourself on um you know when you had a, a really good training session you came away from it afterwards and you said that was a fantastic training session it went really well in hindsight i did those mile repeats on the track and i felt amazing and you look at your perception of effort and you say but you know there was a significant shift in my perception of effort for the first two reps versus the eighth and the, and the ninth and the tenth rep then there's, there's education in there that you know informs the athlete for you know toward a race and the same with heart rate you know understand how it changes you know with with hydration with nutrition with heat with humidity yeah, no, that's fascinating. Very good and a good way of looking at that and awesome analogy on that too. That's incredible. As you just briefly touched on on nutrition there, this is also another big topic for a lot of uh, age groupers in the unknown, especially for a race to a full distance triathlon that they may have not done before. So now when it comes to creating an on-course nutrition strategy for their first full distance triathlon, uh, is it simply double what they currently do in the 70.3 distance if it works for them or what's a sound approach for that yeah i mean the, the the gut is is definitely trainable like any muscle i mean again i think nutrition is one where people can can run afoul um you know never you know never practicing you know having you know three gels an hour uh, and some sports drink in training and then going and doing your ironman and and doing that you know is a recipe for a very upset stomach is there a right answer on, you know, gels versus solids versus only liquid versus real food? I mean, I think it depends on the individual. I think in, in sort of 20, nearly 25 years of coaching, I've definitely seen individuals who have, you know, a really strong gut and can pretty much stuff anything down, you know, and others who are super sensitive. Um, and have to be very careful about, you know, using, you know, the right product on the right, you know, consistency, you know, just racing on gels. Um, I used to work with a guy that used to do an Ironman and he basically put 20 gels in a water bottle on the bike and that was it. And it worked for him. There's not many people that would want to, you know, drink the equivalent of 20 gels through a, you know, four and a half hour bike split. Um, it's just working out what works for you. And certainly in training, you know, real food, you know, is, is very definitely beneficial. Um, you're, you know, clearly placing more stress on the GI system, you know, in spite of the fact that you're maybe operating at slightly lower intensities. And so what, what I mean by real food, I mean, you know, just Google um, Alan Lim and rice cakes, you know, that's a good example of, you know, using sushi rice and bacon and eggs or, peanut butter and jam you know to to make you know tasty morsels that you can carry on a ride but but likewise um test other things you know test other products that that maybe you know people have said hey this works really well you know maybe you should try that um i think the one aspect that people overlook is when you compound things when you add you know gels on top of sports drink you know you're placing a great deal of stress on the gi system from a processing perspective. So, you know, you'd also want to be taking about a lot of fluid at uh, the same time, but, you know, do I have a hard and fast rule that, you know, I could copyright and say, Hey, you know, this is what you should, you know, practice. I mean, I could probably give you one on the bike that, that would be at least a starting point and say to somebody, take the power meter, you know, take the power. If you've got a power meter, take the power number, 
that you intend to ride at in an Ironman, you know, multiply it by 3.6, which is roughly speaking the conversion of kilojoules of work to calories, and then divide that by two because you're getting going to get a significant amount of metabolism from fat metabolism and then maybe try to practice that amount of calories hmm actually that's, that's very interesting and it's kind of like exactly like how you said that too you're right there's no one size fits all just kind of like a training plan it's uh you can't can't do that but i, I actually i do like that the mathematical equation that's something uh it's a great starting point right i think that's what a lot, it's, a, a lot it's of, simply that it's simply that as a starting point you know somebody might go oh well that's garbage that doesn't work for me i can't take that many calories well okay fine then that doesn't work for you. you know maybe you need to practice you know, using, you know, a, you know, a different product or, a, you know, a sports drink, or you may have a very high sweat rate, um, you know, that impacts on, you know, your ability to consume calories. But, you know, just try to think about it as, as logically as one can and just don't think that, you know, not practicing in training what you're going to do in a race is going to work out well. For sure. No, that's very cool. That's amazing to hear. And, so, you know, proper training mindset or even race day mindset is a big thing for a lot of, a lot of people out there. Uh, what do you recommend people try to focus on? Or I guess in other words, when you look at some of the, the pro athletes that you've coached or some of the, the age group top contenders out there that you've coached, uh, what's, what's their mindset like leading up to big races or on, on a race day? Like how do they stay focused and, and get those results that they, that they're striving for? <laughs> oh. I have to chuckle at that, you know, because I'm just thinking of kind of conversations with one or two athletes recently, um, in, including Cody. And, um, you know, I think firstly, I'd say don't have any preconceived notions of how you're going to feel the week leading into the race. You know, ultimately, the week leading into the race, there is nothing that you can do training wise that is going to significantly improve your performance. There is an awful lot of things that you can do from a training perspective that are going to ruin your performance. Um, so in the week leading into the race, you know, uh, simplistically less is more. Um, and from an emotional perspective, you know, don't have any preconceived notions about how you should feel. You know, some people as they get close to the race, you know, like feel like, you know, energized and ecstatic and like a, like Bambi leaping around ready to get, you know, to get after it. Um, you know, other people have got a head full of crazy and they're just, you know, questioning everything. And uh, again, that's just, that's just the wonders of taper and, and human nature. Um, you know, that, uh, don't, you know, don't beat yourself up for that. Um, that's, you know, that's not the time to be questioning, you know, what you have or haven't done and, and nor is the middle of the race the time to be questioning what you have or haven't done. That's right. No, that's true. So, so I guess kind of just what you said and, there, right? Yeah. And just to kind of, uh, and, and just to kind of, you know, finish your point about, you know, going to, what should people focus on is, you know, it comes back to my earlier comment about, you know, within the race, you know, just, just make sure you know what your why is because they, there is going to come a point, you know, when you're in a sort of a very sort of dark place in, in long distance racing. And, and when you know, you know, when you have the peace of mind knowing what that why is, whether it's positive or negative, then that can, you know, motivate you to just, you know, take, you know, one step forward to, you know, to, you know, to pedal for another five minutes. And, you know, just other analogies that, you know, plenty of other athletes have used, you know, is you, you don't, you don't sit down and eat an elephant in one go, you know, you eat it in chunks. So, you know, if you're struggling on the run, you know, just take it one kilometer at a time. You know, just just think about just the next kilometer, 
you know, just think about your posture, you know, your cadence, you know, your breathing and, and just focus on those things for one kilometer. And then at the end of that kilometer, you focus on the next kilometer. Um, you know, that's a Chrissy Wellington analogy. And another one, you know, that I would use is, is sometimes, you know, people get really bogged down in negativity in a race. And, you know, in those situations, I, I encourage folks to kind of picture a, a big red stop sign like you would find at a T-junction. And to picture that red, red stop sign at the T-junction that's effectively saying to you, you know, turn left or turn right. You know, I, as an athlete, say to yourself, right, stop with the negativity. You know, think about my cadence. Have a drink. You know, eat a gel. You know, do something. But don't sit there and wallow at that stop sign. Make a decision. Awesome. I, I love that. that. That's really cool to hear. And it's almost like when I hear, when I hear all this, it gets me a little bit pumped up too, because uh, like I just said to you before this, uh, before this podcast here, that literally today's the day where I'm, I'm heading out to Lake Placid. So it was almost kind of a self-serving question away too, because now, you know, right, right mindset going into this race, just hearing that. So that, that's awesome. Yeah. Keep some of these analogies as you struggle inside race. So that's perfect. Uh, I think yeah. that's great. And you know what? I think that's a great spot then off the podcast, David, obviously. Thanks so much for coming on because uh, you've left us with some incredible knowledge here and probably really helped some, a lot of these listeners on a lot of these things that they've have been common issues or common uh, questions that they've had. So, I mean, before we kind of end it off, I guess for the listeners, if they want to hear more about your coaching, I know you said you're, you're pretty busy, but uh, just for them to look into and, and see if you're ever available, are you able to share your website and where they can sort of find you on social media? Yeah, my... Uh... Um, my Instagram is, is at coach Tilbers, T-I-L-B-U-R-S. Um, I'm on Twitter as Tilbury Davis, all one word. My website is www.tilburydavis.com. You know, certainly on my media page, there's, you know, a whole bunch of articles or interviews, um, that, that may well have more information, uh, for folks. And, uh, you know, those are, that's kind of my, that's my kind of social media presence, so to speak. Perfect. Yeah. Amazing. No, that's great. And so it sounds like you'll be heading out to Kona as well. You just recently announced, eh? Yes, I'll be, yes, I've got four professional athletes racing, uh, and two age groupers. Um, so I'll be a little busy. Um, but I'll, I'll be out there sort of four or five days around the race. Um, you know, spending some, a little bit of time with the athletes and, um, but, but also respecting, you know, that they have their routines, they have their mantras, you know, there's not, again, I, I'm not going to roll up at a world championship race and have some, you know, Al Pacino-esque, you know, uh, half-time empowering speech that is going to kind of completely <laughs> change their world. Um, that's an American football analogy for yeah. those that don't um, follow American football. Um, but the, the reality is, is for, for most of them, it's just having the peace of mind that I'm there to actually kind of ask a question or, you know, put a tire on a wheel or just have a coffee with and just talk about random stuff that's not even triathlon related. Yeah, just to ease the nerves. No, that, that's Exactly, good. exactly. Well, anyway, so thanks so much for coming on then. And of course, not best of luck. pleasure. Oh, that's great, man. And uh, best of luck to all the athletes heading out to 7.3 World Championships this weekend as well, and as well as Kona that you're looking after. So thanks again for coming on, man. And uh, we'll be sure to have you back on again sometime. Take care. Awesome. Cheers.
Well, guys, there you have it. David Tilbury Davis has made such an impact on the sport and athletes over the years. And I'm so glad we're able to have him on today's show. Thanks so much for coming on, David. It was great to listen in to someone so in tune with triathlon training. And now, guys, if you guys want to hear more podcasts like these, then go ahead, hit that subscribe button. And you can follow me on Instagram at pacing.and.racing. And you can also check us out on YouTube by searching pacing and racing. And lastly, if you did like this episode, please just leave a kind review. It all takes two minutes on the podcast channel as this helps us get heard by more listeners through the podcast platform algorithms. Anyways, guys, thanks so much. And we'll talk to you next time. 